three of this series, Summer of Hope. For 16 weeks, we are going from the Old Testament and the New Testament, looking at passages in the Bible which present to us the great hope we have, even in what may seem like hopeless times. And this morning, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1 in a sermon I've entitled, The Basis of Our Hope. The basis of our hope. And at great risk of you tuning me out for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to answer that question. What is the basis of our hope? It's one word. Gospel. (laughs) The good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. This is the basis of our hope. If we are to experience any real, lasting hope, even in hopeless times, it will only come through this good news through this gospel and it is this good news of the gospel it is this good news of what christ has done who he is and his work that he's accomplished friends that has sustained christians through some of the deepest and darkest and bleakest seasons of human history this truth of the gospel but further it is the truth of the gospel the truth of who jesus is and what he has done that has been a powerful motivation to move both men and women throughout the annals of church history, to take bold risks for Christ, to do things that we would look at as the natural person and say, that's unthinkable. I would never place myself in that type of a danger or that type of risk or that possibility of loss. But yet when the truth of the gospel has been contemplated and has been cemented in the heart and the mind and the soul of believers, friends, it has done just that. Now, one case in point is a D.L. Moody. Some of you have heard of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was perhaps the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. He was born again. He was saved out of a Unitarian background by, of all people, his Sunday school teacher. It was in a Sunday school class in Boston that a Mr. Edward Kimball led D.L. Moody to the Lord. My wife Amy and I, when we were in Boston one time, we actually went to the very location where a marker is where he gave his life to Christ. But look at what his Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, said about Moody's pre-conversion state. He said, I can truly say, and in saying it, I magnify the infinite grace of God as bestowed upon him, that I've seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than was his when he came into my Sunday school class. He was dark. He was lost. He was depraved. But God, by his grace, got a hold of D.L. Moody. And God used him mightily. Moody would move in the late 1800s from Boston to Chicago. And it was there in Chicago that he established a church. And then in 1871, we know of historically the great Chicago fire that destroyed almost all of Chicago, including Moody's church, including his home, and including the homes of most of his church members. But Chicago rebuilt like a phoenix from the ashes, and some 20 years later, Chicago was actually awarded what was known then as the Columbian Exposition of the World's Fair. This was a celebration of the 400th anniversary of the discovery of the New World by Christopher Columbus. Amazingly, during this World's Fair that Chicago hosted just a little over 20 years after they were devastated by the fire, they saw, amazingly, 
27 million visitors come to Chicago from 46 different countries. Remember, this is before trains, planes, and automobiles. No, they had trains. They didn't have planes and automobiles. Traveled to Chicago. Among the, the features of this World's Fair was something called the Parliament of Religions. At the World's Parliament of Religions in 1893, they gathered clerics and leaders and representatives from all the known world religions, religions I can't even name, to come together in some common mindset to highlight the characteristics of each of these world religions and to come to some kind of common understanding among them. Well, now D.L. Moody saw this World's Fair that came to his back doorstep as a great gospel opportunity, a great opportunity to proclaim the good news to all these people coming from all around the world. And so he set up among and through Chicago these preaching posts where he would get other evangelists to come and he would take churches and he would rent out theaters. He even rented a large circus tent to serve as a preaching post for this evangelistic crusade during the World's Fair. Well, some of his advisors and some of his friends told Moody, you know what we really ought to do? We ought to be attacking this parliament of world religions. You have all these different religions coming to, to Chicago. We need to get on the offensive and attack them. And Moody said no. Here's what he said, quote, We are going to present Jesus Christ so attractive that all men will be drawn to him. And friends, that's exactly what happened. This crusade in Chicago during the World's Fair was the most successful evangelistic effort of D.L. Moody's celebrated career as a gospel preacher. Thousands upon thousands of people from around the world who thought they came to Chicago for the World's Fair by the providence of God came to Chicago so that they might come to Christ. But Moody's strategy of lifting up the preeminence and the beauty and the glory of Christ as the true and better Savior was nothing new. This is actually what the, was practiced in the apostolic era. And perhaps the greatest example of that is what we see here in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, written by the Apostle Paul, uh, was written to this church that was in a pagan city known as Colossae. In the city of Colossae, the predominant worldview, the predominant religion was Gnosticism. Gnostics. And so Gnostics were essentially the first century parliament of religions. They were kind of, you just bring it all in and we'll just put it all together and let's see what we come up with. They accepted Jesus, yes, but only as one of thousands of emanations of the unknown and unseen God. And so in our text today, Paul doesn't directly attack Gnostics or Gnosticism, but what he does is he holds up Jesus as preeminent. He holds up Jesus as so much better and so much greater than any other possible Savior could be. So with our Bibles open, let's read our focal text, Colossians chapter 1. We'll read verses 15 through 23. This is God's Word. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The Apostle Paul identifies for us here the basis of our hope in that plain and succinct verse 23. He says, we are not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And in these two paragraphs that we just read, there are really two realities that are highlighted by the Apostle Paul I want us to consider regarding the preeminence and the supremacy of Christ above and beyond all other ideals, worldviews, and philosophies. And this is the profound truth that undergirds our hope. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to think about the wonder of the preeminent Christ. The wonder of the preeminent Christ. Again, Paul does here in the first century what D.L. Moody did in the 19th century, and that is he, he is putting on display the preeminence, the supremacy, the highness of Jesus. He is superior, and he is above all things. And there's three things in particular I want to note regarding Christ's elevation above all things. First, Paul highlights that Jesus is elevated over creation. The entire created order, as magnificent and as enthralling as it is to study such things, friends, Jesus is higher. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Now, Paul says he is the firstborn over all creation, or of all creation. Now, Paul uses a word here that, in our vernacular and understanding, the term might cause some confusion about the nature of Christ. The term is simply firstborn. Firstborn. Now, when we think of firstborn, we think of the first born child in an order of children. For instance, my firstborn child is Aubrey, right? Now, that's what we think of in our day, in our way of thinking, but we've got to kind of get into the first century mind, not only the Jewish thinking, but even Greek and Roman thinking. This idea of firstborn wasn't necessarily the first in, order, in birth order, but really the first in preeminence, the first in rank, the first in position. And so, uh, this misconception of what it means for Christ to be the firstborn of creation actually created some false ideas uh, in some of the false religions of the world. I'll point out one. Among one false religion, there is the belief that Michael the archangel that's mentioned in the Bible is actually a pre-incarnate spiritual manifestation of Jesus. That when Jesus became put on human flesh... He was just Michael the archangel putting on human flesh. And so therefore they say, Michael was a created being. And because Michael was created, he's not eternal. And therefore, because Michael was created, he was not God. Jesus, they say, is Michael the archangel. Does anybody know who that is? Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. That's not Jesus. <laughs> Jesus was not created. He is the creator. 
Jesus is eternal. He has always existed. And they'll use actually this passage as a proof text to support that fallacy. But this misinterpretation is easily answered if we understand, first of all, again, this word firstborn does not necessarily refer to children uh, or the first in a child, but the first in position in rank. Secondly, this word of that's in our text can be a little confusing. He's the firstborn of all creation. Let me show you how this word is, is used. Pulpit of wood. Window of glass. What the word of communicates is the substance by which that thing is made up is wood, is glass. How about this? Pastor of church, teacher of class, CEO of company. Doesn't communicate the same thing, does it? The word of means he's the first in priority or in rank or in position or in leadership, and that's what it means here. Jesus is the first in rank and position of, not the same substance, but over all creation. But perhaps most profoundly, we can clear up this misconception about the nature of Jesus simply by looking at the context of this passage. Look again at verses 16 and 17. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is presented here as the creator. He made everything, and the scope of Jesus' creative work is nothing if it's not comprehensive. He created all things. There is nothing that has been made that has not been made by Jesus. He created it all. And in fact, Paul uses really some technical language here to describe he even made the angelic host, which shows us he is higher. That, that phrase, there are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that is technical language for the angelic host and the rank and file of those angels. So if you follow Paul's logic here, Jesus could not be a created angel because he created the angels. Additionally, the simple phrase, by him all things were created, excludes the possibility that he was created. In fact, John, the apostle, the best friend of Jesus on this earth, in his prologue to his gospel, he said a similar thing. In, first, in John chapter 1, verse 3, he said this, All things were made through him, Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. What did Jesus create? All things. What was made through Jesus? All things. So he could not have been made because he's the maker. But further still, Paul highlights this wonder of the preeminence of Christ over all of creation and the fact that not only is he the source of all creation, but he is the sustainer of all creation. Look again at verse 17 in your Bible or on your Bible study outline. It says this, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. As we consider the order of the universe, let's start with our earth and the moon that, that is a satellite around our planet. What keeps, keeps it there? Well, the gravitational pull. Yes. What keeps it there? Jesus. He is the sustainer of all things. Move out a little further and think of our solar system as all the planets. And I noticed this morning, Pluto's not on there. Feel bad for Pluto, don't you? What kind of a deal is that? Being downgraded to just a block of ice. Anyway, 
The, the planets are orbiting around the sun. Who's holding this together? The same one who became a baby in the womb of Mary. Jesus is holding it all together. Let's go a little bit further out and think of the galaxy we inhabit, the Milky Way galaxy. Astronomers tell us that our sun is just one star among 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy. What holds the Milky Way galaxy together? Jesus Christ holds all things together. But this Milky Way galaxy with 100,000 million stars is just one galaxy, according to astronomer estimations, of 2 trillion galaxies in the universe, which is constantly expanding. And who is expanding it? Jesus. He holds all things together. But let's take the telescope and turn it backwards into a microscope. Let's look at the infinitesimally small things on our planet. I know love, you love seeing this kind of a picture this morning. Entomologists have cataloged over a million insects in our planet, and they estimate there could be as many as 8 million insects. They haven't even come to the end of it on our planet. Who's ordering all these? Jesus Christ. Now you take that microscope and you go even closer, and you go to the, the basic building block, the, the smallest unit of ordinary matter, the atom. <laughs> Physicists don't really even know. I mean, there's theories. They don't really know how the atom works. How is it that these electrons are orbiting the nucleus and they describe the space between the nucleus and the electrons to something like the space between the sun and the planets of our solar system? What keeps it in order? Physicists don't really know. We know. Paul just told us. Jesus holds all things together. He is preeminent. The author of Hebrews got it exactly right in his introduction. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Friends, Jesus is the creator of all that exists, and He is the sustainer of all that exists. The very lungs that your breath is coming out of your, the breath that's coming out of your lungs, the blood that's coursing through your veins as your heart is beating, the neurons that, is, that are firing as you're trying to interpret what I'm saying, it's all by the power of Jesus. He holds it all together. So we see the wonder of the preeminent of Christ, not only in his elevated status over creation, but secondly, he is elevated over the church. He's elevated over the church. Paul said he is the head of the body of the church. Just as Christ is sovereign over the universe that he has created, Jesus is sovereign over the church he has recreated. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when you came to faith in Jesus, when you were born again by the power of God, you received the very Holy Spirit of God, and you were at that moment placed in the body of Jesus, known as the church. Who's the head of the church? It's not Pastor Troy. Who's the head of the church? It's not the elders or the deacons or the adult Sunday school teachers. Who's the head of the church? Jesus is the head of the church. And as the head, he has all authority, he has all rule, he has all control, and he has all life. Therefore, it is not our prerogative to say, this is how the church should be ordered. That's Jesus' choice. It's not our prerogative to say, well, this is what we ought to focus on. These are the kind of ministries we ought to employ. No, that's Jesus's prerogative. He's the head of the church. Now, why does he 
why is he the head of the church? Why is he elevated over the church? Well, the verse continues. He is the beginning. See this word again. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We've already seen the term firstborn means first in rank, priority, position. And here's what it means. Jesus was not the first human being to be resurrected from the dead. But he's the most important to be resurrected from the dead. Why? Because without his resurrection, none of us have any hope of a resurrection. So he's the first because he is preeminent. He is the one who has been elevated over the church. He's the one who is elevated over creation. But thirdly, the wonder of the preeminent Christ is that he is elevated in character. He's elevated in character. Verse 15, two verses to remind you of. Verse 15, Paul says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You might want to circle that word image on your outline there. It's the Greek word icon, from which we get our English word icon. Pretty impressive, right? This word icon is used throughout the New Testament. It's used in Matthew 22 when Jesus says, whose image is on the coin? Icon, Caesar will render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, although man, we are created in the image of God, we're created in his image in the fact that we have a rational personality, we have the ability to think, we have the ability to choose, we have the ability to, to feel, but we are not in the image of God like Jesus is the image of God, the icon of God. Because Jesus is the icon of God in the fact that he has moral perfection. Jesus is the image of God in the fact that he has the very divine attributes of God, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, and all the rest. Unlike us, Jesus is perfect and absolutely flawless in his image-bearing quality. He didn't become the image of God at his incarnation in the womb of Mary. He has always possessed these qualities for all of eternity past. And we see this truth communicated in the second phrase, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Interesting, this term fullness here it was actually used by the Gnostics in Colossae in the town to which Paul is writing to this church. They use this concept of fullness to describe the sum total of all the different parts of their religious paganism. So they would add Jesus to all the other thousand emanations or gods and say, well, the sum of them equal the fullness. And Paul comes along and says, no, 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 no. You don't need this idea and this worldview and this religion and this concept to achieve some type of fullness or heightened sense of being. All the fullness, all you need is in Jesus. He is the fullness of deity dwelling bodily. It's all summed up in one person. Paul continues this argument, as you see there in the next chapter of Colossians, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The point is, when you see Jesus, you see the full revelation of God. When you come to know Jesus, you come to know all you need to know. Now, our finite minds can't possibly comprehend the depth of the wonder of the preeminent Christ, that he is elevated over the universe, that he is in charge of his church, his body, his bride, and that he is elevated in character. As we begin to think about and meditate on these truths, 
there can really only be one response. Complete submission. Total allegiance of our lives, of our passions, of our world. Any other pursuit outside of this goal of yielding everything to Him is futile and worthless and downright ignorant. Once you begin to understand the glory of the preeminent Christ. In fact, in another letter the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament, the book of Romans, Paul concludes chapter 11 with some similar words. This is the last verse of Romans chapter 11. Notice what he says. For from him, Jesus, and through him, Jesus, and to him, Jesus, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the preeminence of Christ. So what should our response be? First verse of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, what's the therefore? That Christ is above all and through all and in all. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When we start to contemplate the preeminence of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus, there can be no other response but to give our lives as a living sacrifice to Him. In all things, Christ preeminent. He should have first priority in every area. In your marriage. See, first. In your family. See, preeminent. In your job, in your workplace, your occupation, your business. Does Christ have first place? In the way you spend your time, your eating habits, your entertainment, what you watch, what you listen to, what you read, your pastimes, your hobbies, your conversations, your social media profile. Does Christ have first place? As we contemplate the wonder of the preeminent Christ, it leads us to the same conclusion as Romans 12.1. We present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to Christ. But the second truth I want us to consider from this passage is not only the wonder of the preeminent Christ, but secondly, the work of the preeminent Christ. We've considered who he is. Now Paul moves us to think about what he has done, his work. What is the work of Christ? Well, we've seen who Christ is. What has he done? Specifically, what has he done that provides for us this basis, this foundational reality, this this fundamental truth that gives us lasting hope. It comes down to a single word. It's a word that's used in the passage we just read. Here it is. You might want to write this down. Reconciliation. What is the work of Jesus? One word. Reconciliation. Back in the olden days, a long time ago, when we had checkbooks <laughs> and we had ledgers or registers in the back of those checkbooks. Y'all remember those days? And you would write a check at the grocery store. You wrote a check everywhere you went. If you were wise, after you wrote a check, you would flip it over as the other customers are waiting to get to the cashier, and you would go ahead and write down how much you just spent, right? Anybody remember doing this back in the olden days? Sure. You still do. Hallelujah. That's wise. <laughs> 
So when I was a single person, before I handed over my checkbook to Amy, which was one of the wisest decisions I ever made, when I was a single person, I would get the bank statement at the end of the month, and I would take the bank statement and look at the balance and look at the check register I had, and they were not in agreement. <laughs> they were out of alignment. They were at odds with each other. And so I would go through the process of reconciling my ledger with what the bank said. And usually it was because I took an ATM cash withdrawal and forgot to write it down, right? This is what reconciliation means. It's to take things that are out of alignment, take things that are at odds with each other, and bring them together. And what has Christ done? What is the work he has accomplished? It is the work of reconciliation. And friends, what we need to know, because this was necessary, is that every single one of us, by virtue of our nature at birth, and by virtue of the fact that we've all made idiotic, dumb, stupid decisions, we are out of alignment with God. Not just out of alignment. We are at odds with our Creator. We're not just off by a few pennies. We're off by a mile. We're desperately sick. We're hopelessly lost. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that our status in our natural state is under the wrath of God. Pretty hopeless. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 8 that we are hostile towards God. James chapter 4 says that we are at enmity with God. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are dead spiritually in our natural state. And in fact, notice what our focal text says in verse 21. And you, 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 and me, we were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Friends, I'm so thankful you don't know the evil deeds this sinner has done. But God knows. God knows every thought. God knows every intention of my heart. God knows every selfish action. God knows every time I've elevated my own pride and my own position and my own reputation above His. And He breaks me over it. But those things make us at odds with God. We're at enmity with God. We're unreconciled to God. Friends, this is why I asked you to ask the question, God, am I a Christian? Because if the answer is no, you are still hostile to God. We are so out of alignment, and that's woefully inadequate to describe our lost condition. We have no hope, and the work of the preeminent Christ is to bring reconciliation. And he's accomplished this work for us. Three things I want to point out regarding Christ's work of reconciliation. It is accomplished as a result of God's reconciling pleasure. Reconciling pleasure. You ever find things that just give you pleasure? You ever thought about what gives God pleasure? What does God enjoy doing? Well, there's an infinite things God enjoys doing, but there's two particularly that Paul mentions in this passage. He takes great pleasure. He enjoys the fact that all of his fullness dwells in Jesus. He takes pleasure in that. But not only that, God was pleased 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So the reconciling work of God through the blood of the cross of Jesus, watch this, not only reconciles lost sinners like me and you to God, but Paul says this work reconciles all things to himself. What's all things? All things. I want you to think about God's creation before the fall. It was created in perfect innocence. It functioned as an ecosystem in perfect harmony. And then as a result of the fall, not only did the fall of man, the, the sin of humanity, plunge us into hostility with God, but it also plunged all of God's created order into hostility. Genesis 3 tells us that the ground itself was accursed after the fall. My back is hurting this morning because the ground was accursed yesterday when I was working in the yard. Perhaps the, the, the most sweeping description of the fall and its effect on creation is in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Notice what Paul writes there. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, Adam, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Friends, creation really does groan and moan, doesn't it? Every time we hear about an earthquake, every time we see some type of natural disaster, a tsunami, a volcano, a hurricane, disease, pestilence, pandemics, creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth to be liberated from the hostility and its bondage to corruption. That's why we sing at Christmas time, no more let sins or sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? Far as the curse is found. That's even the creative order. And so the expansiveness of God's reconciling work in Jesus will include all of creation, but not only creation. The greatest accomplishment of his reconciling work is to reconcile lost sinners to himself to reconcile human beings created in his image to himself. If you do a word search in your Bible concordance for this word reconcile, both in the verb form and in the noun form, what you will discover is that every time this concept of reconciliation appears in the Bible, it is always describing the initiative of God. God is the one who takes the initiative to reconcile. And think about it. Can the creation reconcile itself? No. It's under a bondage of corruption. Only the creator can reconcile creation to himself. And the same is true of you. You bring nothing to the table. No worthiness, no deservedness, no merit. Well, God, you know, I'm a whole lot nicer than that person. No. The only way you or I will ever be reconciled is fully and completely on the initiative of God. What this means, friends, is that God, as he takes pleasure 
in reconciling sinners to himself, he enjoys doing it. God has determined to reconcile sinners to himself. And think about this. The cross of Jesus. We've got about 25 crosses in this room. As cruel, as ugly, as heinous, and as despicable as the perfect Son of God dying on a cross is, it brought God joy. How? Hebrews tells us how. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, that's pleasure, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God enjoys reconciling reprobates like me to himself. Somebody needs to hear this today. Your sin has not taken you too far to be reconciled to God. You have not done things that earn you eternal hell that from which you cannot be rescued. Just like us, God does what he enjoys doing. God does what he takes pleasure in doing. Now, you may even be here and say, you know, if, if I were to come to God, it would have, I'm going to have to come clean. It's going to be some dark nights of the soul. Hear me clearly. God does not require any kind of self-affliction for you to be reconciled. He's done all the work. He's taken all the affliction. He's endured all the pain. And He's offering it to you as a free act of grace. So come and be saved. This is the reconciling work of Jesus because he takes this reconciling pleasure. Here's the next thing I want us to see, the reconciling process. What is the process? What is the means that God accomplishes this reconciliation? Two phrases to note from the text. Verse 20, making peace by the blood of the cross. And verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We know, according to Romans, the wages of sin is death. Here's the, here's the deal. God is the judge and the jury. He has determined what the sentence for sin against him would be. The sentence, death. But God took his own medicine. God said, here's the sentence for your sin, death, and here's the payment. I'm going to die. God died for you. Jesus, we've already seen, is God, the fullness of God. God died for you. And the motivation for his reconciling work the motivation for his blood of his cross and his body of flesh of death is his love for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So there's no extent the love of God won't go to bring you to himself. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 repeats the details of this process of reconciliation. He says, in Christ, in Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself 
not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf, behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Look at verse 21. For our sake, he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The only question is, how have you responded to this work of reconciliation? The Bible says there's only one response, two parts. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. What is repentance? It means an about face. It means to turn. It means these reins of control of my life. God, don't worry, I got this. We release the reins and hand them over to God. That's repentance. And faith is simply trusting in, clinging to, relying upon what Jesus has done, his death, burial, and victorious resurrection. Believe in the fact that you bring nothing to the table and Christ has done it all. But the question is why? Why? <laughs> why did he do this reconciling work? Why is he now pursuing sinners and bringing them into a state of reconciliation? Well, we see that in this final point, the reconciling purpose. Here's his purpose. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friend, there is no sweeter message in all the world than to hear God announce to you after waking up in a miserable state, <laughs> after living a day where you regret a lot of the decisions and the things you've made, that you can go to bed tonight quiet and peaceful in heart because you've been forgiven of all that past, present, and future and you are reconciled to God. Here's the thing. Let's go back to the parliament of religions. There is not another religious system in the world that paints as bleak and as bad a picture of the human condition as Christianity. Every other religion out there, oh, people are basically good. People are really trying hard. Christianity comes along, you're desperately sick. <laughs> but also by comparison in the parliament of world religions, there is not another religious system that presents to us the possibility and the potential of what mankind can become. What? Holy before God? Blameless? Ain't no way. Above reproach? Righteous before our Creator? This is what Christ has done. This is the work of reconciliation. There is hope. <laughs> As we close this morning, I want to come around a profound truth regarding the basis of our hope, the gospel. Here's what we need to understand. The gospel is not merely a pronouncement. It is. It's not merely that. The gospel is not only a message or an ideal or a worldview. It is, but it's not only that. The Bible, the gospel, is the Word of God. Here's what we know about the Word of God from the Word of God. The Word of God, according to Hebrews 4, is like a sword. The Word of God, according to Jeremiah 23, is a hammer. 
The word of God, according to Isaiah 55, goes forth from the mouth of God and it will accomplish every purpose for which it was sent. The word of God, the gospel, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. In fact, I love the way this living, breathing, working message of hope is described by the psalmist in Psalm 29. With this, I'll close. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry, glory. This is the gospel. It's not like any other news. It's not like any other message. It is powerful. And it is this powerful message of the gospel that will penetrate the darkest parts of our world and it will penetrate the darkest parts of the human heart. And so with this great hope, the invitation is this. Let him who is thirsty come. Let him who is without water come and drink at no cost. Come, receive the gospel. Stand in the truth of Jesus, who he is, the wonder of his preeminence, and what he has done, the work of his preeminence. Let's see the last thought. Into a world that is hopeless, God is sending us with the only message of hope, the gospel.